Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. A few years ago, I say, maybe five, six years ago, seven years ago, I don't really remember now, my wife and I were on our way to Asheville, North Carolina. We were going up to see some friends and spend some time there. Almost a decade after working on the Holy Cross case, private detective Mike Zuvis was driving down a rural country road on vacation. He wasn't working, but he's a PI. He's observant. And those instincts kicked in when he pulled up behind a big silver Lincoln town car full of people all dressed in black robes. And what struck me immediately was how many people were in it. It looked like it was a circus car. There were heads, three or four heads in the back seat and a couple of heads in the front seat. I go, holy moly. So I kind of pulled up a little bit. I put the cop hat on and I pulled up just to look and I looked and it was Father Abbott sitting in the passenger front seat next to the window. Driving the car was Petro. Surprised to see the monks he knew from Florida, Zuvas drove closer. He hit the horn and signaled for them to pull over. When Father Abbott went, saw Zuvas, he recognized the private investigator immediately. His eyes got this big. You know, he's wondering, what in the hell am I doing on a North Carolina highway, you know? So they pulled over, and I got out and walked over to the car and uh, said, hey, what are you guys doing here? And he said, let me ask you what you're doing here. And I go, just joking, I said, I'm following you. <laughs> you know, and they acted a little nervous about all of that. Did it strike you weird that they got a little nervous when you said, I'm following you guys? Yeah, I mean, you know, it did, absolutely. And so, you know, we bid each other farewell, and that was that. And uh, I never saw him again. A few years after that run-in, Zuva says he got curious about the monks from Holy Cross. He went to his computer and typed in the site where he'd found them not long after that last encounter. But everything was gone. Their website no longer existed. Fathers Went and Damien, Petro Tarenta, and the other monks had all disappeared. And now, even the private investigator couldn't find them. I'm Paula Barros. And I'm Melanie Bartley. And this is Sacred Scandal.
you can't have truth without accountability and transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. In the years after the murder at Holy Cross, Mike remained adamant that he was sexually abused by the priest who ran the school. And as the investigation into those allegations continued, the attorneys prosecuting Mike for the murder of Sister Michelle eventually came to believe that he was being honest with his claims. The defense and prosecution worked hard to find more evidence to corroborate Mike's allegations. They traveled all the way to Ukraine looking for answers. And the process of serving subpoenas and scheduling interviews with the priests and monastic candidates took years to organize in Miami's busy criminal justice system. But everything was a dead end. Fathers Went and Damien remained silent, and none of the former monastic candidates ever said they were abused too. The monastic candidates left Assistant State Attorney Gail Levine frustrated. Those boys, as stiff as they were to us and as robotic as they were to us, were the same that they were to the, the sexual battery detectives. So again, a brick wall. You keep hitting a brick wall. Nobody's giving you any other information. We then tried uh, different ways. We brought in Department of Children and Family Services of uh, the state of Florida. They found nothing. We brought in immigration. We, we tried all different avenues. And the only person that ever admitted to being abused was Michaela Kofel. And he had committed a murder and a violent one. So he was not a defendant that could turn into a very sympathetic victim. So no, it, the investigation was closed after all of the avenues were explored. With the case closed, it left Mike's defense team to speculate on why they were unable to corroborate Mike's claims of sexual abuse. One of those defense attorneys, Ray Tassif, has his own theory. I don't believe that they sexually abused all of these people by any means. I think they were very, very um, selective as to who would be involved in terms of who they thought they could control the most. And so they were very careful about that. that. That's my own sense. But I think the others had some sense that something was wrong or, or something was going on or were, if not programmed, it was in their own interest to sort of play along with this. Edith Georgie, the lead attorney for Mike's defense, was left frustrated by other elements of the sexual abuse investigation. There was basic police work that she says needed to happen as soon as the allegations were made, but never did. I think one of the biggest mysteries of this case that remains unsolved is when Mikhailo made the allegations about Father Abbott and Father Damien, the police had reason to search Damien's and Abbott's residences, and they were never searched either. What would have been found in their residences one can only imagine. Miami-Dade, Metro-Dade Police Department has all the resources in the world to do this kind of thing. They didn't do it. The priests moved off campus soon after Mike's confession. And as days turn into weeks and years, the likelihood of finding any evidence in those rooms diminished. Now, with the sexual assault investigation closed, 
the focus shifted back to Mike's trial for the murder of Sister Michelle. Though the sex abuse case was inconclusive, Mike's defense team still planned to use his allegations as part of an insanity defense at trial. Edith Georgie says she gathered enough fragments of evidence from the testimony of the monastic candidates, things like the late-night footsteps or hotel sleeping arrangements, that could maybe convince a jury that Mike was telling the truth. But she knew the insanity defense was still a risk in the courtroom. And I think that testimony in particular confirmed much of what we already suspected and knew and wanted to present as part of our defense. So our defense was shaping up, shall we say. And I think Miss Levine recognized that. We also had huge problems because there was clearly some preparation by Mikhailo, even though he drank himself silly that night. Um, alcohol is not a defense in the state of Florida. Insanity is. And um, he did face the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison, that's life without parole, if he were found guilty by a jury. Juries don't really like the insanity defense. They often reject it. Maybe about one in 50 will accept it, and that might be generous. So he, he ran the real risk of never getting out of prison. On the other side, Prosecutor Gay Levine was worried about more than the testimony of the monastic candidates. She knew that Father Went and Father Damien's silence could also be damaging. If the priest came to court, she knew they would plead the fifth to every question. But if they weren't called to testify at all, that could also have an impact on the jury. Now, would that have looked very suspicious? Of course. People would have said, gee, maybe it's a second-degree murder because he was so enraged and he really didn't have that premeditated design to kill. And I hate those priests. They didn't even show up, blah, 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 blah. She couldn't argue, where are they? So they would have said they were going to take the fifth and you can't put somebody on that's going to take the fifth. And the jury can never hear that. So the judge was going to exclude them. So she could throw a lot of doubt about what's happening at this church, what's happening at the church, and make a lot of his confession. But am I going to get that first-degree murder? Am I going to get that death penalty? I knew that was waning. Gail was also worried that the judge would make it difficult for her to get a harsher sentence if this case went to trial. And that also had to do with the priests. I had a very liberal judge. And that judge was a Catholic. And that judge had said things in front of Miss Georgie and I that made me feel that he felt that those kids were being sexually molested. He'd roll his eyes. During the depositions where they were taking the fifth, he seemed very angry that they were taking the fifth. So my concern was he wasn't going to give him the 23 or 22 years that was the bottom that he could give him. And now I'm getting, for 92 stab wounds, I'm getting maybe 10 years. Maybe I'm getting probation. I wasn't willing to take that risk with that judge. The fear was that he wasn't going to be punished for what he did. And I don't think that it was worth 10 years. I think it was worth much more than that. I think it was worth 30 years. And that was the number I wanted. Gail said that by this time... She felt the death penalty was no longer on the table. Because I think he had mitigation. So in Florida, in order to get the death penalty, aggravating circumstances must weigh mitigating factors. He wasn't in a gang. The person wasn't over 65 or under 12. 
He wasn't on probation or community control. He did have the uh, contemporaneous crime, which was the burglary. So he had two. But did I think that in the end I was going to get seven people that thought he was the worst of the worst? There's 15 reasons for the death penalty. Those two, in his circumstance, did not weigh against the mitigation. In the build-up to the trial, both sides knew they were taking a risk. So they came together to work out a plea deal for Mike. There would be no trial, and no possibility of Mike spending the rest of his life in prison. But there'd also be no chance of him serving a light sentence. So we did some negotiating. The prosecution and our team worked very hard with Mikhailo. It was a very difficult decision for him to make, to accept even a term of years that he did, because in his heart and in his mind, he knew and we knew that he really lost control because of everything that had happened to him. But we had to weigh that against the likelihood that he'd never get out of prison. And that's a real hard thing. In the end, it would be Mike's decision. He pled guilty to second-degree murder and burglary and accepted a 30-year prison sentence. Yes, it was his choice, of course, when he had to weigh these alternatives. He gets out, not guilty by reason of insanity. He gets found guilty, spends life in prison, or he works out something in the middle. And the middle course is the safer course. It's probably what I would recommend if he were my child, because I would never want to see my child in prison for life. You know, he's got so many positive features that we knew he'd be okay as long as he could eventually get out of prison, and he'd know that. He had a lot going for him, and no one wanted to see him rot for the rest of his life in prison. By the time of Mike's sentencing, it was February 2005, almost four years since the night that he stabbed Sister Michelle more than 90 times. But even now, with the sexual abuse case closed and Mike about to spend the next three decades in prison, things would not just go back to normal at Holy Cross. Because by now, the school was nothing more than a memory. That's coming up after a break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.
Welcome back to Sacred Scandal. Immediately, the rumors surrounding the murder started flying. The details were so dramatic. It was either twice with an axe or a hundred times with a fire poker, you know, or he had a pistol or it was rape. I heard a lot of different stories as to what he did, you know, that he was caught stealing from the accounting office and that Sister Michelle had said that she was going to report him. I remember hearing that he was trying to get his documentation so that he could leave and that Sister Michelle stumbled upon him and they had an altercation that somehow ended in her death. It seemed like everything was going downhill. I guess there was enough scrutiny in the media that it just went downhill, you know? This is what life was like at Holy Cross after the murder of Sister Michelle. It was a swirl of rumors and stories about her, Mike, and the priests. And each new discovery in the case made it to local TV or the newspaper. And that fed those stories more and more. But the priests didn't really talk about the murder or the allegations against them. There were a few letters home to parents, reassuring them that everything was fine. But I don't even recall seeing them around as much for the rest of that school year. One of the times I do recall hearing from them, though, was in the days right after the murder, at an assembly where Father Went asked us all to pray for Sister Michelle and Mike. One of my former teachers, Jennifer Vida, remembered Father Went's words that day, too. And then the next kind of thing that he said before it was sort of all said and done that like shook me to my core was when he said you know this is very you know difficult news this is definitely very hard to hear hard to handle this is hard for our community if you need to talk to someone or you need, you know, to deal with your grief or however he phrased it, you can certainly seek counsel from myself or Father Damien, or you can go to your teachers. And like, my heart stopped at that moment because I turned around to my co-teacher who was teaching English part-time and just looked at her and we she just also looked like she had been like smacked in the face and we we're both looking at each other like what is happening here like we haven't even been able to process this information ourselves why because again like none of this had been digested I think by any of us I remembered this moment also And it always felt weird to me that the only counseling that they ever thought to bring in after the murder was people at the school and never anyone else. So it was surprising for me to hear that one of my teachers felt the same. I don't know. I guess that I expected naively that that would not be a position that we would be put in because we are not trained at all to deal with that level of grief, to provide any kind of therapeutic interventions, to do counseling. I mean, these are, there are people who go to school for years for these types of things, and we are not it. I am teaching you all poetry and diagramming sentences, and yes, we're learning about the humanities through art, and we're exploring like life themes and stuff in our classes, but that is incredibly different from like, yeah, let's sit together and talk about like 
how it feels like nothing makes sense and your entire world is crumbling and you don't know how to deal with your emotions right now. Neither do I, interestingly enough. Um, now, I guess on looking back, why do you think it was that father went went that route with not offering outside counseling and didn't want to bring in experts gosh i have no i have no idea i you know the community was pretty close-knit and it's one of those things where like we deal with our own things you know we keep it in the family like we have a very specific way that we do things and we want things run you know i speculated that perhaps they had some kind of like an insurance company giving them direction as to what statements to make, how to respond, what to do. I, you know, I, grief counselors and those types of things cost a lot of money. There may have been financial. I mean, it, it's like I really there could be numerous reasons why they decided to go that route. I have no clue. The year after the murder was a hard time for Holy Cross Academy. Some people no longer wanted to be associated with the school where the nun was killed, and parents pulled their kids. My parents were some of them. I graduated that spring after the murder, but over the summer, my parents decided that my little sister would not be going back to Holy Cross. Teachers left too, and the following school year, as the stories about the murder, the sex abuse, and the eparchy investigation made the news more parents and teachers started to lose faith. At some point about a year after the murder, Ms. Vita says she was asked to sign a letter to parents, showing her loyalty to the school. But by then her mind was made up. The priest's silence had gotten to her. I was asked by someone in a position of authority if I would consider signing a letter that was to be sent to the parents, essentially saying that I was planning on coming back next year and that I, you know, believed in the education that Holy Cross offered and in the student body and all of that and that I was committed to returning to the school the following year. And it was an unequivocal no. And not because I was trying to be difficult, not because I was even upset at the way that everything had been handled. It was because I had already made a decision and I was not under any circumstances going to stay. Uh, Upset at how everything had been handled after the murder, are you only referring to the lack of counseling or were there other ways that they dealt with the aftermath that you didn't agree with or that stood out to you that you were like... Yeah, I mean, it was just essentially, yes, that was a big piece of it. The lack of transparency around the issue with the community at large. And, you know, I understand enough about communications and just generally moving through the world that like your staff or whatever, it's like you're addressing the world because information is not contained. So you totally understand that there are from a legal perspective and just from a protections risk management perspective, a lot of things that could not be shared, but there was zero transparency. And I watched the students and quite frankly, the teachers like battle with that in the aftermath. As attendance dwindled, not every teacher had the choice to come back. Nan Gardner, who was Father Wen's assistant headmaster and dean of students, 
told us that the decision was not up to her. No, it wasn't voluntary. They came in and told me they weren't going to need me the next year. I had a full year after the murder. And uh, I understood that the enrollment was way down and just that was the end. I was okay with it. Marietta Fernandez was deeply a part of the school. Her kids went to Holy Cross since kindergarten. She says that in the year after the murder, it felt like things were starting to come undone. So did things begin to feel like they had unraveled? I think so. I feel that, yes, it did. But we felt a great loss, a lot of disorientation. And as the year progressed, it was very hard and very bad because the parents were getting so involved and creating, I believe, so much rumor that was untrue. At some point during this time, people at Holy Cross found out about the Eparchy's investigation. So now, there were rumors about whether Father Went and Damien were really priests. Then, Father Went gave in and broke his silence. Marietta said he gathered parents and showed them a book from Miami's Latin Catholic Diocese. He told them the book proved he was an ordained Catholic priest. She said that helped, but not for long. It got a little bit tranquil for a short time. But then you have something in the media that was happening every day. You know, and people that want to be that way and create that kind of havoc, and it's in their nature to do that, they're going to do it. But we were such a tight-knit community. We were such a, a family. You know, at this time, the school had grown a lot more. The school was beautiful. The high level of education remained there, but, you know, we had a lot of ins and outs. So, yes, it was felt, but I think we could have made it through had we stuck together and remained as a family. You know, that was very sad. A lot of people, you know, separated at this point. A lot of friendships were broken. It was ugly. It was bad. It was sad. The castle on Sunset Drive was slowly starting to empty. Holy Cross lasted just three full school years after the murder of Sister Michelle. In the final one, 2003 to 2004, enrollment was down to about half as many students and teachers. Even some of the monastic candidates did not return. On the final day of school, all that remained was Father Went, his adopted son Pedro Tarenta, Father Damien, and two other monastic candidates, Basile Kopich and Josip Lembach, who came to Holy Cross the year of the murder. For Fathers Went and Damien, the dream they built was gone, but they would start over. The group would leave Miami and set up a new monastery in the mountains of North Carolina. They bought a house and some land in a rural area called Weaverville, just outside Asheville. They funded their new project by selling off the land where they built the school and the monastery, property that was purchased over decades for about $875,000 
was sold for a total of about $9.8 million. And the Byzantine eparchy who wanted to take that property back got nothing. Because even before the academy closed, the priests were beyond even the Vatican's reach. More on that after the break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Welcome back to Sacred Scandal. I'm Paula Barros. And I'm Melanie Bartley. Back around the time that Mike's plea deal was coming together and enrollment began to drop at Holy Cross Academy, the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church started to overtake headlines across the country. But in the mid-2000s, there was a lesser-known church scandal that kicked off right around the same time, and it also brought decades of church secrets to the surface. But this wasn't in the Catholic Church. This scandal happened in the Orthodox Church in America, which is more commonly known as the OCA. In the context of the scandals in the OCA, we call this the time of troubles. This is Mark Stucco. He used to be a member of the OCA's governing body called the Metropolitan Council. That council is made up of bishops, priests, and lay people from the church. During the Time of Troubles, Mark ran an independent accountability website called ocanews.org. He started the site at the beginning of 2006, when the initial OCA scandal started to become public, and kept it active until 2011. So for about five years, we would publish stories about the ongoing scandal and scandals in the OCA to try and force the administration to reform itself. And um, we were ultimately uh, rather successful in that. So the short story of the time of troubles starts like many scandals, with money. Large sums were missing from the OCA's budget and were found to be going to an unused bank account that only two people knew about. One was the OCA's Metropolitan, its Pope-like spiritual leader. The other was the church's chancellor, a leader on the Metropolitan Council. And Mark told us that the main culprit here was that chancellor, a priest named Father Robert Kondratik. So from 1999 through 2005, the OCA paid approximately $2 million of the chancellor, 
that's basically the CEO, who's not a bishop, who was a priest, they paid $2 million of his family's credit card charges, covering 20 personal credit cards and two corporate cards. There was no documentation or receipts to support any of these purchases were by the OCA. They included personal travel and lodging to places like Aruba and Las Vegas, tanning and hair salon charges, jewelry store purchases, and ordinary living expenses such as groceries, wine, newspaper, magazine subscriptions, cable bills, clothes, and shoes. Mark said the OCA's annual budget at this time was around that same amount, $2 million a year. And he told us his money came from a lot of sources the chancellor would have had a hand in, like fundraisers. For example, in 2004, 333 people were killed in a terrorist attack on a school in Russia. About half of the dead were children. The OCA raised money to help the area in the aftermath, and Mark says the chancellor was tasked with delivering the money that was donated, but that not all of it got there. We raised around $160,000 from parishioners in a solicitation to help do this Christian act of charity. And um, he took $85,000 of that for his own use. Eventually, Kondratik was ousted, and the group was assembled to investigate how he was able to hide what he was doing. That group issued a report that claimed other people with influence at the OCA knew about the missing money, but had their own scandalous reasons for not stopping him. One of those named was the church's spiritual leader, Metropolitan Herman. I'll just read you a a quote from what it said. Several interviewees claimed that a significant source of Kondratik's power over members of the Holy Synod and other clergy was his knowledge of their alleged personal moral failings, specifically with chemical addictions and sexual improprieties. The report goes on to say, at least three sources informed the Special Investigative Committee that Metropolitan Herman affirmed that Kondratik had blackmailable material of a sexual nature about each of them. Just an old-fashioned story. At this point, you're probably wondering why we're talking about this completely different scandal in a totally different church. Well, not long before the OCA's time of troubles began and all of this came to light, Chancellor Kondratik was in Miami. He made a special trip to inspect a school and monastery that were interested in joining the OCA. Then, not long after that trip, October of 2003, during Holy Cross's final year in operation, Metropolitan Herman arrived on campus to formally accept Fathers Wendt and Damien and all the monastic candidates as members of the Orthodox Church in America. Now that they were no longer Byzantine Catholics, the priests, the school, and the monastery were completely outside the reach of the Eparchy or Vatican investigations. Right. So, here's something you probably don't know. In the 1980s, the monks first approached to join the OCA to start a monastery in Miami. And that plan went askew because just as they were about to announce all this, there was a group of former Episcopalians who'd become Orthodox that ran a boys' school and farm in Picayune, Mississippi, that was accused of sexual misconduct. 
And that school was closed. Everything was hushed up as it was in those days. But it eliminated a possibility of starting the same sort of thing in Miami. And then the next year, the monks start the monastery as a Byzantine Catholic monastery. And a few years later, they start the school. So then fast forward after the murder, a year after the murder, the OCA has its national convention in Miami in July of 2002. And that's where the monks first show up on the OCA's radar again. And they are all observers at this national convention of the OCA. So they were obviously scoping things out and meeting people at that meeting. And then eight months later, they wrote a letter saying that they wanted to join the OCA. Father Kondratik was sent down to investigate them. <laughs> and he said, there's no reason they can't be accepted in the OCA. And so Metropolitan Herman accepted them. And he went down himself to receive them into the OCA. When Kondratik and Metropolitan Herman accepted Holy Cross into the OCA, the murder and sex abuse investigations were still ongoing. Enmark says that Father Kondratik, the chancellor of the OCA, personally investigating Holy Cross is strange. He told us it's typically the local bishops that do these sorts of inspections. But the diocesan bishop at that time was the same bishop back in the 1980s who had originally been willing to receive them. And so when they tried to do it 30 years later, according to my sources, he was not really happy with this idea at all, although he said nothing publicly and didn't stop it. So they saw no red flags after there had been a murder in their monastery. Well, according to the quote-unquote investigative team that was Father Kondratik and the secretary of the Metropolitan, there was no reason not to accept them into the OCA. When the Holy Cross became Orthodox, we put information about the accusations on our website. And almost immediately, I think, we got a letter from Father Wentz's attorneys telling us that we needed to take it down or they would sue us in state court. Melanie Sakota is a former lawyer and support coordinator for an organization called SNAP, Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. It's an organization she started working with after witnessing abuse at her own Orthodox church in California. When the Holy Cross monks joined the OCA, she was part of a website called pakrov.org a nonprofit for survivors of church sex abuse, and a network to share information about priests accused of abuse. That's where she posted information about Mike's allegations against the priests of Holy Cross. It was probably one of our first letters, so we were a little taken aback, as I said. Um, you know, it came in handy that I had gone to law school, so I wasn't quite as worried about it because I, I knew that they couldn't sue us in state court probably because we didn't have ties to Florida. Melanie says there were a number of things that stood out about Holy Cross's transition to the OCA from the very start. The other thing that struck me was that they literally changed everything. They changed their names. They changed the name of their monastery. They changed their affiliation. And then 
after Mr. Caulfield was convicted, they moved to North Carolina. And it's suspicious. Now in the OCA, the monastery became protection of the most holy Theotokos. Father Abbot Gregory went, was now Archimandrite Gregory. Father Damien became Igumen Damien. Petro was Nicholas. The monk Vasile was called Seraphim, and Josip was Mark. But soon the bigger scandal in the OCA would begin, and the monks of Holy Cross would go unnoticed in the wake of those larger issues. In the meantime, the group from Holy Cross would start building that new monastery in North Carolina. They would work on creating a community and sell religious books in the area. But as the time of troubles continued to bring forward scandals in the OCA, it wouldn't be long before it found the monks from Holy Cross. Here is Mark Stoko. When these monks were accepted into the OCA, you know, it was kind of done under the radar. It, it didn't make headlines. No one knew very much about it all outside of the small area around Miami. It was only four, five years later, in the midst of the time of troubles, that so one of the scandals in the OCA in 2008-2009, the Archbishop of Canada, Archbishop Seraphim, was accused of sexual misconduct with a young boy, actually two, 25 years earlier. And this raised questions, naturally, and an investigation was launched. And as Archbishop Seraphim was a frequent visitor to the monks when they lived in Weaverville, North Carolina, that is after they'd been accepted into the OCA, that brought those monks on the radar. Because people said, why is he always going down to North Carolina? And as a result, there began to be calls for investigations into these monks, like, who are these guys? And it's like, wait a minute, these are the guys, there was a murder at their monastery and they were Byzantine Catholics, and who are these guys? Members of the OCA's Metropolitan Council started to look into the North Carolina monastery. They found out about Sister Michelle's murder, Mike's allegations of sexual abuse, and even the Byzantine bishop's case against them. Now, the OCA was on the alert. And once they were on the radar, people started going there. And they, you know, were shocked that there was a triple-wired electric fence around the property, that there were security cameras everywhere. This is not what you see in an Orthodox monastery. And people wondered, you know, why is there a swimming pool? Why is there a spa? People were saying, what's going on? Who's in charge here? And as a result, the Metropolitan Council decided that they would delegate three people, including a member of the legal committee who was an assistant federal attorney, to go and investigate these guys and do it on a serious basis. How did they get in the OCA? What have they been doing? And parentheses, what's our liability if any of this comes out? If all this smoke shows that there's fire somewhere. 
And at that point, Metropolitan Jonah, who had replaced Metropolitan Herman after he retired, Metropolitan Jonah stopped the investigation. And I can't tell you why. Mark told us that he saw signs that the monks were rattled by the OCA's investigation. As part of the beginning of the investigation into them by the Metropolitan Council, we have the property records, the transfer titles. And it's a pretty clear pattern. Every time there were questions raised, beginning in 2004, so the title of all these properties got transferred from one thing to another thing. And you can see these title changes happening if you look at the public records. The ownership of the property in North Carolina moves between three companies. It starts with Holy Cross Academy in 2004, when they first bought the land. Then, a few months later, it moved to a newly formed company called St. Nicholas Brotherhood. In 2010, when Archbishop Seraphim was being investigated for sexual abuse, Ownership of the monastery moved again, this time to the protection of Most Holy Theotokos Monastery. A few months later, it moved back to St. Nicholas Brotherhood. These companies all are held by some combination of Father Went, Father Damien, and Petro Tarenta. So that it's impossible to figure out, you know, who owns it, but it always goes back to Went. And, uh... When the OCA began asking questions, the monastery was transferred. And that was, I would assume, because questions are raised, well, does the OCA own this monastery? The OCA also wanted to know how Holy Cross, with the open sex abuse investigation, the Epergy investigation, and the fact that Mike still hadn't been sentenced, had gotten through any initial inspections to join the church. Melanie Sakoda said there were theories tying it all back to the original OCA scandals. And one of the things that was uncovered in that scandal was that a lot of donations that were sent into the OCA were being siphoned off into an account or accounts that were available to the Metropolitan and to his chancellor. And so I think the speculation was that the monastery was accepted because they paid toll to the troll. Uh, Now, I don't know if that was uncovered, but it was some speculation because the chancellor and the metropolitan at the time came down personally to oversee the acceptance into the OCA. At that point, perhaps money could have changed hands. But nothing was ever proved. A year after the investigation into Archbishop Seraphim from Canada started, the priests did the same thing they did only a few years before. They switched churches. Though their release wasn't announced until the following February, the group from Holy Cross officially left the OCA in October 2011, almost exactly eight years after they joined. Once they got investigated by the Byzantine Catholics, they jumped ship to the OCA. And when the OCA actually began to investigate them, they jumped ship and joined the church in the Ukraine. 
But they didn't go back to Catholicism or even join another church in the United States. The monastery in Weaverville was now part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Not just Ukrainian in name, but the actual church in Ukraine. Mark says that this is not uncommon for Orthodox groups with troubled pasts to do this as a way of covering their tracks. It's called jurisdiction hopping. So there are 30 different Orthodox jurisdictions in the United States, and oftentimes people that get in trouble in one jump to another. And as there's up until recently been little communication between them, they were successful in doing that. It always struck Paula and I how easy it was for the priests to move from church to church, to say we're Catholic, now we're Orthodox, now we're something else. The thing is, the Byzantine Church, the OCA, and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church all share the same liturgy. The Orthodox churches just aren't under the Pope in Rome. So though they are structurally different, their beliefs and practice are a lot alike. But the church they were a part of now was not new for the monastic candidates. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church that they joined back in 2011 has its leadership in Moscow. It's essentially the church the remaining monastic candidates, Petro, Yosef, and Vasil, were forced to join back before the fall of the Soviet Union. When we talked to Vasil's cousin, Ilya Herzog, earlier this year about his own experience as a monastic candidate, we also asked him what he thought of the group moving to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. What do you feel about them changing religions? It was a little bit weird because it was the thing that we ran from. As I said before, we were allowed to go only to Moscow Church here. And our church was like an underground church, so and the forbidden church, very Catholic. It was forbidden. And uh, for me, it's... Uh, it was weird why Vasil stayed there. And Vasil, for sure, would, if he had a choice, he would go, I believed, but, but he stayed. When private investigator Mike Zuvis got on his computer to search for the monks from Holy Cross, the ones he saw driving in that big silver car through the hills of North Carolina, there was a reason why he couldn't find them. The jump to the Ukrainian church would not be the group's final move. Not long after that switch, Went, Damien, Petro, Vasil, and Yosip packed up and started a new monastery in the mountains of Ukraine. And that's where it seems like the story ends. The assault case closed, Mike in prison, the monks and priests in a different country outside the reach of any Byzantine, Orthodox, or police investigations. But for Melanie and me and so many of the former teachers, parents, and students we talked to, Father Went and Father Damien's silence still hangs heavy over everything that happened at Holy Cross. So next time on Sacred Scandal, we're going to go on a 5,000-mile trip to try and break that silence.
Sacred Scandal is a production of Exile Content Studio in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. Sacred Scandal was created and produced by Melanie Bartley and me, Paula Barros. Our senior producer is Dennis Funk of Written in Air. The executive producers are Rose Reed and Nando Villa. Production, mixing, and sound design by Helena DeGroot. Our production assistant is Imani Leonard. The show is fact-checked by Kimberly Winston. Original music and final audio mixing comes from Patrick Hart. And special thanks on this episode to George Drake Jr., Alyssa Mardinet, Corey Chakowsky, Michael Haziza, and Travis Roig. If you'd like to reach out, email us at hello at sacredscandalpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Sacred Scandal. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.